Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Spencer Wright, welcome to Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you back on again. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, fantastic to be back on the show. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. For the listeners, we had Spencer on maybe a month and a half ago, maybe a month ago or so. The episode actually should be coming out uh, in the next week or two. But Spencer and I spent an episode talking about how uh, we think through issues and what it means to be thinking irrationally. And we we had a really good discussion about that. So if you've uh, not heard the first episode with Spencer, I would suggest you listen to that first. It will set this conversation up. Uh, But today what we're going to do is we're going to go through a few of the sticky issues of Mormonism. And I'm going to attempt to go back into uh, my apologist brain, uh, that time period that where I spent uh, being an apologist in, in a lot of ways. And I'm going to hold uh, Spencer on some of these sticky issues to the apologetic answer. And we're going to let him see if he can show why these solutions or these reconciliations are either irrational uh, or, or certainly uh, less likely and less reasonable than than the critical arguments answer. And so, Spencer, you wanted to set this up. And so I'll turn some time over to you to kind of give the listener uh, some examples of how to work through these these kinds of conversations. Yeah, so I, I think that especially when we are, we, we have sort of an emotional connection to the issue, it's sometimes difficult to understand or to see where the, the most rational uh, explanation for that, that specific issue comes from. So what I wanted to first do was look at some issues that have absolutely nothing to do with Mormonism, just so we can kind of see what is the most rational answer and see why it's the most rational answer and then apply that same thinking to the Mormon answers. Um, in my, my book, I talk about Dyson spheres. Uh, and so for anybody who doesn't know what Dyson spheres are, they're, they're a theoretical uh, contraption around a star that could, could uh, could exist somewhere out there built by, you know, uh, advanced aliens to harness the power of their, their local star. Um, and so scientists uh, who, are, who are astrophysicists who are out there looking for uh, 
evidence or evidence of aliens uh, may see something that looks a little bit weird around a certain star, like little dips in light or something like that. And uh, so sometimes these pop up in the news, the, the potential uh, Dyson spheres that are something out there. Now, the the astrophysicists who are looking at this, of course, probably are just as excited about the possibility of seeing alien life out there as uh, as, I, as I am. And and so when they see these dips of light, of course, the very first thing they're probably hoping that it is is some sort of evidence of alien life. But they're, what they're doing is what they what they actually do is they will um, first try to see if there's some other plausible explanation for the dips in light that isn't aliens. Now, the, the first thing that we might say is, well, why would we want to look for something that's, that's uh, an alternate explanation for aliens when we may have found evidence for aliens? And the, the, the reason is, is because we may not have found evidence for aliens, and so we have to kind of look for alternate explanations that can help us explain it. Um, the the idea here being that there's something that we really want to be true. I personally, I want that to be true. I think that would be awesome if we found evidence of alien life. Uh, but we have to look for other explanations first that can account for whatever it is that we are measuring in order to, uh, to explain what's going on. But, but clear what we're doing there when we're, when we're coming up with the most rational answer for the explanation. And so what we're doing is we're first looking for kind of a mundane answer that can, that can explain what all the data is going on before we jump to the, the sort of supernatural explanation or the wild explanation or the, or the, the, uh, the fancy explanation. Uh, another Another example would be like, and this is just a, a simple example, just a, a teacher is talking to the student. The student says, well, uh, a, a dog ate my homework, right? So at any teacher has probably run into this at a time or two that, that a student has given some kind of uh, a wild excuse for why they didn't get their homework done. Now, the most, and, and of course, dogs are relatively mundane, and, and that explanation is relatively mundane, but given the alternative between those two explanations, the explanation that the kid probably just didn't do their homework is probably the more likely explanation. And in this situation, what we have is we have some additional uh uh, additional function of the explanation that that is relatively unnecessary in order to explain the overall situation. We can very relative we can very easily explain the the situation by well the child probably just didn't do their homework. They may be looking kind of uh, nervous while they're trying to tell the story, kind of all the typical uh, indications that somebody's lying. Uh, so. So here's another example where the most rational explanation is probably that the, the child just didn't do it. Unless there's some, some uh, evidence that the dog actually did eat the homework, the most lo logical, likely explanation is that the child just didn't do the homework. And then we could take it even one step further. Well, what if the child came in and said, well, a dragon ate my homework? So right there, we have an, an additional uh, problem to the explanation, which is there's no evidence for dragons. We don't even have evidence for dragons to begin with. So probably the more likely explanation is the child is just making up the story and they just didn't do their homework. And I think that 
that anyone would agree with me, you know, any, any person that considers themselves to be rational would agree with me that the most rational explanation is that the child just didn't do their homework as opposed to a dragon ate their homework. Yeah, perfect. Um, and as you point out, like, the only way the dog ate the homework becomes a more reasonable or maybe the most reasonable or the rational answer is say the child brings in additional evidence, which is shredded up pieces of paper that have the homework assignment on them, um, which shows that he went through the work to do it. And so like you point out, I mean, it's one thing to have additional evidence come in, which now prompts you to reevaluate what is the most rational conclusion. It's another thing to not have that evidence and to simply say like, um, if we understood all things, we would recognize that there is other evidence out there. We just don't have it. And then to still go with the less rational answer. Yeah, exactly. So like if the child were to say, no, but dragons really are real. I, I have a very firm belief that dragons are real or that I, last night I said a prayer and I got a very special feeling in my heart that dragons are real, that to the, to the teacher that should, shouldn't change the, the, the credibility of the one explanation versus the other explanation in any way whatsoever. So um, with that, are you ready to kind of jump into an issue or do you want to set this up with uh, any other concepts or ideas? Um, so let's, let's look at just maybe one more really quickly. So we have a, let's have a court sure. case. Um, and uh, there's a man who knocked over a convenience store. Uh, and so here's a guy with a history of, of petty theft uh, he, the, the store attendant uh, identified him. There's video surveillance, and he even had a buddy who was there with him who uh, actually ends up turning state's evidence and and uh, uh, and IDs him and and essentially t- turns against him. But then the man himself claims that it was actually aliens who robbed the store and they just doctored the video footage and they changed everybody's memory. Um, but let's, let's add two more little elements to this, which is that coincidentally there was a show about aliens on the history channel that night. And somebody did report seeing a light in the sky that night. And so what we have here is we've got a couple of little elements that in some way sort of coincidentally do sort of seem to align with what the, the man was saying. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it, it, it proves that aliens are real just because alien, a show about aliens just happened to be on the History Channel that night or that someone did see some light in the sky. I mean, people see light in the sky all the time. But the point being that someone could then reasonably, I suppose, turn around and say, well, there are some there are some pieces of physical evidence that tend to somehow support the guy's otherwise relatively wild assertions about aliens. And I think that this is, again, something that, that kind of pops up frequently within uh, trying, trying to make a case for Mormon claims, where we will see something where it's like some kind of coincidental piece of information. But on the, on the whole, it's relatively easy to see that this one or two little little pieces of coincidental information just simply do not outweigh the fact that there's no evidence for aliens. And all of the other evidence is 
strongly supporting that the guy knocked off the convenience store. So when we're kind of comparing these two things, what we're looking for is the preponderance of evidence. We're looking for, can we explain those, those other two little pieces of information as either coincidence or, you know, there's some other relatively simple way to explain those other pieces of information. It's just a coincidence that there was a, there was a uh, episode of aliens on the history channel that night. There, the fact that there was light in the sky, there's always little lights in the sky that doesn't prove that there are aliens and all of the other evidence uh, strongly supports the notion that the guy just knocked over the convenience store. And so using these concepts, we can look at the examples of Mormonism and kind of see that it's relatively simple to tell what the most rational explanation for Mormonism's claims are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, All right. So with that, uh, why don't we pick one of these? Why don't we, I mean, would you feel comfortable if we started off with the book of Abraham? Sure. Yeah. Let's, Let's talk about the book of Abraham. And and I want to add to it, which is an additional issue that's now come up, I think, in the last couple of years, which is just uh, Joseph Smith's translation productions generally, uh, which uh, each have some issues with having some source material outside of being ancient, something contemporary to Joseph. But let's start with the Book of Abraham. We'll work in these other sacred texts within Mormonism as well. Um, but the Book of Abraham, I'll try to line this up a little bit. Uh, the Joseph Smith originally with the Book of Abraham claimed that he was translating Egyptian papyri uh, that came through Kirtland uh, in the 1830s from a Mr. Chandler. Uh, this church and Joseph purchased the papyri and some mummies. Joseph Smith says that these are the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. Joseph then translates these into the Book of Abraham. Uh, and everything that all seems pretty faith promoting until years later when uh, the Egyptian language can suddenly be translated into English and pieces of those um, that Egyptian papyri surface, it appears to be the pieces that Joseph actually worked from because of where the facsimiles are, where the... Um, Characters are that made up the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And we now know, at least in terms of Egyptologists, that this Egyptian language was not translated correctly by Joseph. The facsimiles are not translated by Joseph correctly. And this is not anything that resembles uh, the Book of Abraham, but is instead a standard funerary text. Uh, So my pushback, Spencer, would be that uh, and again, I'll put on my apologist hat. I, I would agree with you, Spencer, that uh, the pieces of Egyptian that we have were not translated uh, into English the way Egyptologists or those working with Egyptian would see that. That said, the possible solutions for this are that there's still a missing section of a scroll that belongs to this papyri, and on that particular section is the book of Abraham. And another solution that we want to throw out here is that Joseph may have thought he was working with this papyri, but since he probably is not looking at it directly in the same way that he was not looking directly at the uh, plates that Moroni had given to him, that uh, Joseph may have thought that's what he was doing, but instead God gave him a sacred text through that experience 
and Joseph made an assumption that it was the book of Abraham, but in reality, it had nothing to do with that, and God simply didn't let him in on that um, understanding, and that we call the catalyst theory. And so let's work with those two, because I think those are the two uh, best responses that Mormonism has to offer uh, for this issue, and see kind of what you think from there. Yeah. So uh, there are a number of documents uh, written contemporary to Joseph Smith uh, that are known as the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. And these are all available on the Mormon-owned, Mormon church-owned website, uh, josephsmithpapers.org. And so you can, you can find all of these documents there. These are, and so these are not some, somehow anti-Mormon literature or something like that. This is owned by the church. These are documents owned by the church. Um, one of those documents that was produced under uh, Joseph Smith's uh, direction was a document known as the uh, the Egyptian Grammar and Alphabet uh, document. And what that document demonstrates is that not only was Joseph Smith attempting to translate actual characters from the papyrus, from the the, the, the one specific papyrus. Uh, and actually, he did this on a, on a number of, of other papyri, but uh, but also we know precisely where he believed he was translating from. Um, and so, so if we you have to actually look at the papyrus, but or I'm sorry, at the document. But what the document demonstrates is that uh, Joseph Smith was trying to translate a specific character as the Chaldees, and so the Abraham. Chapter 1, verse 1 references the Chaldees and also references the name Abraham. And so we can see from that document uh, that he saw a specific character uh, as representing Chaldees and, and ideas around Chaldees and another character representing uh, Abraham. Uh, or the name Abraham, and so we can see on an, on another document. They, they, there's actually uh, three copies of the, the the manuscript, the original manuscript that they had for the Book of Abraham, and right next to uh, each paragraph are some of the Egyptian characters that actually correspond precisely with the uh, a certain section of one of the papyri that Joseph Smith had access to. And so right next to Abraham 1.1 on that uh, specific uh, manuscript, there are those two characters, and then it's immediately followed by the, the characters immediately following those two characters that correspond to the rest of the Book of Abraham. So we, we actually, contrary to what Mormon Egyptologists say, we know precisely where Joseph Smith believed he was translating from. So the idea that we have no idea what Joseph Smith was doing, that we have no idea where he was translating from, the, the, the rational answer when we're saying, what, how, okay, if we're going to have to explain all of the data in order to have it all make sense, we have to explain why that lines up so perfectly. And so the, the three manuscripts that we have the, of the the text of the Book of Abraham, all have the same thing. They all have the same exact characters, the Egyptian characters lining up with the exact same paragraphs, uh, demonstrating that Joseph Smith not only believed, number one, that he was translating from that specific area, but that number two, 
he believed he was actually translating those characters. So it's, so it's, it's actually, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence demonstrating that Joseph Smith believed he was not only translating that section, but that he was translating Egyptian characters. Okay, so with that said, though, Spencer, I, I've read the book of Abraham. Uh, I feel the Holy Ghost when I read it. It is scripture. It's sacred text to me. And so um, knowing that it is scripture, knowing that it is sacred text, I don't, I'm not so much concerned with whether Joseph thought he was translating characters and whether he actually was. What I know is that God um, certainly has the ability, because he's all-powerful, to then put ideas into Joseph Smith's mind. So if Joseph thinks he's translating these characters, like even if we can agree and say like, yeah, that looks like the very spot he's translating from, the reality for me is that uh, God is all-powerful and our ways are not God's ways. And so God certainly has the ability to put ideas into Joseph Smith's mind, even if Joseph thinks he's getting those ideas by looking at specific characters. I also want to add to Spencer, and I want you to deal with this, which is that um, when we look at the facsimiles, we have a, a couple of examples of Joseph getting things right. Uh, the four canopic jars, uh, which stand for the four uh, various directions in the earth, as well as the crocodile god, which um, which has a relationship uh, back to Egyptian. And so Joseph Smith also has some bullseyes. And so I certainly understand your argument, and I, I understand the criticisms. The reality, too, for me, though, Spencer, is that Joseph also got some things right, um, that he really had no business getting right, as well as the fact that I have this end text, which just is, is so um, special to me spiritually that I can't deny it. And I want to get your thoughts there. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's even a couple of other things that we could add in too, is that the story itself uh, seems to kind of point to some uh, some other relatively old texts. In fact, we have some Mormon apologists who point out several things within the text itself that give the impression that these are things that Joseph Smith couldn't have possibly known in the 1800s, or sorts of those sorts of things. Like, for example, uh, there there are some some records, uh, some uh, Jewish records that that kind of tell tales of Abraham being attacked or killed by, by bad men or that, that sort of thing. And there's also some records of uh, Abraham going to Egypt and actually even teaching the principles of astronomy <clears throat> to uh, the Pharaoh in, in the Pharaoh's court. And so, and, and neither of those stories show up in the Bible. And this, these are the arguments that Mormon apologists make about the text itself. So the, the first thing, if we were to look at those things, we actually have a, a writing of Oliver Cowdery where he is actually talking about the writings of Josephus in relation to the papyri that Joseph Smith had access to. And so we know that uh, people around Joseph Smith, if not Joseph Smith himself, had access to the writings of Josephus. And within the writings of Josephus, it talks about Abraham visiting the Egypt and talking to the, the Pharaoh about the principles of astronomy. 
So things like that, where, where the, the, the argument is that, well, these stories don't exist in the Bible, therefore Joseph Smith couldn't have known about them. Well, the reality is that was not the only book that Joseph Smith ever read in his entire life. We, we know that at least people surrounding Joseph Smith were very familiar with the writings of Josephus, and probably Joseph Smith was also familiar with the writings of Josephus. Um, same, same kind of thing. The, the, the Jewish stories about Abraham being sacrificed or, or killed by bad men or whatever would have been readily available to Joseph Smith during Joseph Smith's time. So when we're talking about the idea of God could have given the these stories to Joseph Smith versus they could have just read it in Josephus, then what we're left with is we've got essentially the argument of I didn't do my homework versus the the dragon dragon ate my homework. Do, do we do we need to invoke a supernatural force in order to explain how Joseph Smith got those? Uh, the the ones where were the the hit the the hits. So uh, the the crocodile connection is talking about the Egyptian god Sobek, and Sobek uh, was a was a Egyptian god, it's true, and uh, and there was some representation of Sobek to the pharaohs. And uh, the argument is made that the name Sobek was very popular during the time that Abraham uh, was supposed to have been alive, and pharaohs would invoke the name of Sobek as, as their pharaonic name. The, the problem is, is that Pharaohs did this all the time. Pharaohs, pharaohs invoked the name of various gods all the time. And so we've got uh, many, many other gods like, like uh, Amun. When we're talking about uh, Tadak Amun, uh, that's talking about the, the god Amun. Well, Amun is invoked much more frequently than Sobek was, and, Amun, and, and uh, Osiris and, and all kinds of different names are used for different pharaohs throughout all of the ancient Egyptian history. And so here again, uh, if, we, if we're really, really stretching, yes, this is a coincidental sort of thing. When we, when we look at the, the, the four sons of Horus, those are the, the canopic jars, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's one possible interpretation of what those canopic jars represent, but it's, it's actually not the, the main interpretation of the canopic jars. Uh, the, the four quarters of the earth is not generally how they're interpreted, but that is one uh, potential uh, interpretation if you kind of stretch it. And so again, this kind of goes back to there. Well, it's possible because there were, you know, somebody saw some lights in the sky that day, and and so yes, it's it's. I guess it's possible that we're looking at those and saying, is that God who did that, or is that is, did God put the lights up in the sky that that night? The guy knocked off the the communion store. Yeah, I guess it's possible. But ultimately, when we're looking at all of the the entire preponderance of evidence, the evidence just supports that Joseph Smith had contemporary sources that he could turn to to get almost all of the information they got to produce the book of Abraham. Yeah. And, and if I take off my apologist hat for a moment, what, what also needs to come into the picture is the fact that Joseph translated a lot of things on these facsimiles and outside of these two, which are slight coincidental kind of hits. There's also now a couple of dozen, maybe more than that, of things he just got flat out completely wrong. Um, I want to I want to throw out the Book of Mormon here because it's a similar argument, um, and I want to uh, 
throw it out in the sense of recognition that there are hits in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and maybe get your thoughts on this. So the Book of Mormon is is a little different storyline in terms of how we got it and and what's involved in, in that translation. Um, while Grant Palmer can point to explaining about 80% of the book in various ways, some of those stronger than others, some of those weaker than others, the apologists would come in. So I'm putting my apologist hat back on. And I would say when I look at the Book of Mormon... Uh, there's things that I see that I can't explain. So even in spite of Richard Bushman saying the book has way more 19th century material uh, than we've currently explained, I'm, I still can't just let the Book of Mormon go as a 19th century product, at least not completely. I'm willing to have a conversation about it being a mixture of ancient and modern. Uh, but the reality for me is that I look at the Book of Mormon and I see chiastic structures. I see um, a chapter about olive culture that seems to be written by someone who understands uh, the the uh, horticulture of growing olive trees. When I look at the Book of Mormon, I see Nahum. Um, so I'm seeing things in the Book of Mormon that tell me there is an, a possible... Um, connection to ancientness and, and maybe even more than possible. Like I'm seeing these things and they, they feel like uh, bullseyes, uh, things that Joseph would have not had or understood. And when I uh, combine that too, with the fact that we have 11 witnesses to this book, uh, three who claim to have had a spiritual experience and to have seen and, and uh, these plates and this angel in vision and then these eight witnesses who claim to have had a physical experience and to have uh, felt the plates and to look at them. And so when I combine all that, it, it feels to me like it's maybe 50-50. And because I've had a, a prayer about the Book of Mormon, and I know the Book of Mormon is true, hence I'm always going to side with faith. That's that's the direction I'm going to go. And so I'm, I'm open to having a conversation about there being some 19th century material in there. But I, I just, I'm closed off to it being entirely a 19th century product. And so I want to get your thoughts kind of on that sacred book as well. Yeah. So the, one of the first things that you mentioned was chiasmos. And uh, it's generally touted by Mormon apologists as being a Middle Eastern uh, artistic form, like, like poetic form. Uh, although the the reality is, uh, chiasmus is used in other contexts as well. I, I did a translation of the Tao Te Ching, which is a Chinese work, and while I was reading through it, uh, for by my translation, uh, I realized that there was actually uh, chiasmus structure inside of this Chinese work. I, I don't I don't know that anybody's ever pointed this out before. I didn't I didn't have this pointed out to me. I just noticed. And it was it was essentially a perfect chiasmus form. I know that uh, Shakespeare wrote in chiasmus, uh, and uh, there, he has he has a lot of uh, different uh, chiasmus patterns inside of, uh, of his work. Uh, I, I also noticed that sometimes when I kind of patter, when I kind of get into a nervous uh, pattern sort of thing, uh, I end up talking in chiasmus. You can't, you're trying to make a point and you get to the center of your point and you kind of lead back out again to, to the, the end of your point again. And so 
the idea of chiasmus existing elsewhere is it's, it's just bound to happen. I, I write I write chiasmus sometimes when I'm not even intending to write chiasmus, and so the idea that somebody who has been uh, trained up on the Bible, which the Bible supposedly has chiasmus all over the place as well. Uh, somebody who evidently has large portions of the Bible memorized is likely going to write in chiasmus when they are writing in chiasmus. Joseph Smith lived in a time where the Bible was an incredibly important part of the culture, and uh, and it was not uncommon for people to know large portions of the Bible. So for the idea that chiasmus exists in the Book of Mormon could still very easily be a product of 19th century thinking. Uh, the idea of the Nahum you had mentioned. Uh, so, so the Nahum is the, the idea is that in the Book of Mormon, as Nephi and his family are traveling to the Middle East to to eventually build a boat and and sell to the Americas, uh, come across the place called Nahum, um, and uh, I guess they have found some writing on some. Uh, some ancient uh, artifacts that has the, the letters, the, the consonants NHM. And so although that didn't actually tie necessarily to a region, it could have been a, a group of people or something like that, then they are uh, calling this, the, well, there, there you go, there's the, the per- perfect hit right there. Well, uh, again, we've got essentially the consonants of Nahum what that could in theory, have, have created a whole bunch of different words that are not Nahum. But even just granting that, the statistical probability of hitting three consonants is actually, and, and I, I remember actually watching a presentation where they were talking about the statistical probability of hitting those three letters. And it's actually pretty easy uh, to hit three consonants. And so, so again, we can say, oh yeah, that was a, that was a perfect hit. And yet, uh, coincidentally speaking, statistically speaking, it's actually not that impressive to have to have hit those specific letters. There's there's letter there's sections in the Bible. There's there's a there's a uh, uh, names in the Bible that have those same the same three consonants in them. So so it's yeah. While while interesting again, it still ends up becoming somewhat coincidental. Um, what were some of the later things that you were... The, the witnesses. So even, oh, even witness, if we explain yes. away some of these issues, we have these 11 witnesses. Yes. So, so as, a, uh, as a child, I was actually a, somewhat of an um, amateur music, a magician, not musician, although I tried music as well. Uh, but I was an amateur magician where I had to learn how to fool an audience. And so I... Um, I got relatively good at this, actually, where I where I could do magic tricks, make people think that they were seeing something that they were not, uh, and so it became uh, somewhat clear to me. And this may have been part of the reason why I ended up uh, kind of losing my belief in in Mormonism was because I kind of realized how simple it was to show somebody something and kind of tell them that it is something and it wasn't really that something and have them believe that for the sake of the the magic trick. And so um, I believe it was uh, Dan Fogel that had had, uh, presented a a potential alternate explanation for the plate in that Joseph Smith could have relatively easily built the same set of plates 
using common tin or something else like that, and then just essentially put it into a box and had it mostly shrouded uh, in order to kind of give the impression that what they were seeing was uh, plates of gold. Or maybe didn't even let them really see it, but just kind of fill it through through cloth or whatever the case is. We don't really know the circumstances uh, around which each one of those those uh, witnesses uh, actually got to when they say they they saw and handled the plates and whatnot, uh, because the the, uh, the the witness testimony itself is actually just one common testimony written by one person and then signed. I, presumably they all agreed to whatever the, the, the written testimony was, but it wasn't even signed by, you know, different individuals. The signatures are all the same on there as well. And so not to take away from the fact that those guys probably at least somewhat agreed with what that testimony said, but it's in many ways, the testimony itself is almost leading the witnesses to say a certain thing as opposed to getting those independent witnesses where you have independently written down explanations of what occurred when they saw those plates. So there's still, there's still a lot of wiggle room in here for a relatively simple magic trick to have occurred where they saw something and then they're kind of pressured to, to sign a document that essentially says what they, you know, what probably something happened similar to that. Um, and then signed by one person saying all of these people were witnesses to the fact. So what actually happened? Well, I, it's difficult to say. We've only, we've only really got one record of what happened, and it was, a, it was written by one person. And so what's the more likely explanation? The more likely explanation is that it was probably some form of magic trick where they were shown something that gave the impression that they were looking at some ancient you know, uh, artifact, but ultimately there's not really enough evidence to demonstrate that we have here independent witnesses and we can kind of compare those, those, uh, those independent testimonies to pin down what actually occurred. So what about the person who's going to push back against you and say like what you're saying are also just possibilities. You're also just giving um, your idea of what, what you think might've happened you're phrasing it as if both answers, you know, my side as well as your side, both are asking for some extra uh, circumstances, some allowances, some assumptions to be made, that, that both of these are on equal planes as far as reasonability. Yeah, and so if we were to take it back to the, the Dyson Sphere example at the very beginning, uh, essentially the scientist is almost asking for the same thing. Because the scientist doesn't, like, one of, one of the potential explanations for why we have those dips in light is uh, asteroids, you know, kind of orbiting around that sun. And so we're just seeing kind of a weird frequency of dips in light uh, because there's just a band of asteroids that just happen to be in exactly the plane at which we can see the sun. And so we don't, we don't know that we don't know that with absolute certainty that that's the explanation for the lights. I mean, for that matter, it could be a Dyson sphere. It could be evidence of aliens living, living around that, around that star. So we don't know with, with absolute certainty that either one of those answers is right. But when we're saying, well, what is the, what is the more rational of the two explanations? Then we have to go with the asteroid explanation. 
We, we have to, because the other explanation requires us to invoke some sort of uh, otherworldly force in order to explain. So really, when we're talking about what the rational explanation is, we, are, we have to say that we can't appeal to sort of a magical, supernatural explanation when a mundane, natural explanation exists. So they're really not on the same plane, like the, the asteroids and the Dyson spheres, although they're both just potential answers because we can't say with absolute certainty for either one, there is a rational explanation between the two. There's, there is a hierarchy of rationality between those two explanations. And the reason why the scientist is tending toward, it's not because they don't want it to be a Dyson sphere. It's not because they're not hoping it's a Dyson sphere. It's that we have another explanation that it can account for all of the data that itself is a natural mundane explanation that doesn't require further explanation. So they're just simply not the same. They're not on the same plane as far as the, the potential of rationality. Yeah, and now, now if I take my apologist hat off for a moment, if we go back to the Book of Mormon, for instance, you make um, the argument that you, having had this experience as a magician working with um, sleight of hand, to trick people into thinking they saw something they didn't see and then offering that the Book of Mormon could very much in terms of the, the physical production of plates have been the same thing. I think it's crucial that we comprehend that Joseph had already been doing similar kinds of things throughout his youth, that he was convincing people of where treasures were and he had them all in on these treasures and, and had these people dig uh, for days at, on end into the sides of hills, essentially digging out the what would be described as a cave um, and convince these people to do these digs when in fact there never was anything there and these people continued to pay him to do it and he continued to scry for them, telling him where these treasures were. He already has a pattern of knowing how to present things in a way so as to convince people to believe in his stories, to believe in uh, the props that he has, and to convince them to do things on his behalf in order to show that they believed what he was telling them. Yes. In fact, one, a little magic trick that I used to do, it was more of a joke because it's relatively simple to see how the trick is done. But I would, I would hold up my hand, like kind of in a closed fist, and I would say, so in my hand, I'm holding a gold coin. And then I would say some magic incantation or something and then I'll pop my hand open. And of course, it's now the gold coin is gone. So the trick, of course, is that I can make, you know, coins disappear, but they never saw the coin in the first place. There wasn't, no, there wasn't a coin in my hand to begin with. And so it was more of a, of a, of a joke, but in a sense, what I'm doing is the same sort of thing as what Joseph Smith was doing when he was claiming that there was some sort of treasure at the bottom of the, of the, of the, the, the dig that if they were to just dig far enough, they would find it. And then, oh, the explanation was always once they reached the bottom, well, there was a demon or something who magically whisked the, the, the gold away. Well, that's exactly the same as me doing the trick with the gold coin in my hand that was never in my hand to begin with. They've, he's created this, this illusion that there is something down there, and then there never actually has to be anything down there in order for the trick to happen. We can just magically whisk it away with some, some magical incantation or demons took it away. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that a few dogs and sheep had their throats slit for an invisible treasure that never existed. 
Um, so let's go to, I think another big one I want to cover here is profits. And as an apologist, or as let me start off with a believer. As a believer, I'm taught that my church leaders are prophets, seers, and revelators. That these men have the ability and do talk directly to God and to Jesus Christ. And that may show itself in different ways. I think that would be the debate. I think the Orthodox believer thinks Jesus shows up in the room and has a conversation with these men. Um, A more nuanced believer makes space for that communication perhaps happening in different ways. And he makes room for fallibility. And so I would allow for these men to get it wrong sometimes, uh, but also recognizing that they uh, have the responsibility to speak the mind and will of God and have some level of communication with him within their stewardship that I don't have, that it's my responsibility to listen um, and to try and be in tune with their communications that they have, which they impose are from God. I'm also taught as a Orthodox believer that these men, like Moses, Noah, and Abraham, have access to God magic. They have the ability to perform miracles. Um, something as small as maybe a priesthood healing, uh, maybe something as big as striking a critic dumb for three days, or uh, having fire come down from heaven at his plea, uh, maybe uh, being able to part water, those kinds of uh, things that have been done by prophets in the past. Um, again, I would make some room that maybe prophets today are different than prophets of old in some ways. Maybe even prophets today are different from Joseph Smith in some ways. But that in the end of the day, these men are prophets, seers, and revelators, and and hold and have the keys and ability to operate as those prophets of old operated. Um, your thoughts there kind of dissecting what we see versus what we've been taught to expect. Yeah, so just by giving them the title, the, the prophet, seer, and revelator, we're, we're essentially setting them apart from the common man. We're trying to say, in essence, that that man who has been given the title of prophet, seer, and revelator can do something that the, the common man is incapable of doing. That they, that they, in, in essence, we we have to say that when we say you're you're a pilot, right? I'm I'm not a pilot. You're a pilot. So what we're saying is, in some way, you are set apart from me. In some way, you have some sort of knack or skill that I don't have. That if put to the test, we could demonstrate. There's a reason why you've been given the title pilot. And so, in the same sense, you know, they're given this title, and presumably that's the whole purpose of giving them the title, is to say, I am a prophet because I can prophesy. I am a seer because I can see. I'm a revelator because I can reveal. And so then the question comes up, that, you know, very natural question. Okay, well then, what, what have you revealed? Go, go ahead and reveal something. Um, and so when, when uh, I'm, I'm given sort of giving an opportunity to a Mormon to sort of defend that position. Uh, modern day wise, uh, the, the prophet is almost always just sort of somebody who, well, that's not, re- you know, that, that, that's putting on a show, that's, that's asking for a sign sort of thing. And, and, you know, we can make all of the excuses that we want, but ultimately, if they're not doing something that a normal person couldn't have done in the same exact circumstance, then that's sort of undeserving of the title to begin with. 
But um, on the on the flip side, like I, I have conversations with my Mormon friends, and we'll talk about these kinds of things, we'll run into these kinds of issues or something, and it kind of comes down to that: give Joseph a break, sort of thing. Give 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 him a, a, a way out where he, you know, he's not a perfect person. He's he he makes mistakes. Uh, you know, prophets don't necessarily do that or don't need to do that. Um, you know, he's just he's just a normal a normal man. Right. And so I've actually had this exact argument made to me to say, hey, look, he's just a, he's just a human. He's not like he's a demigod or anything. And so I will turn around and say, but that's my point. You're, you're now making my point, not not Mormonism's point. If you're trying to argue that he's no different from from me, like I could have guessed, you know, if, if we're just if we're just saying, go ahead and prognosticate the future. Guess what's going to happen in the future? Well, I'm, I'm actually, without magic powers, I'm actually pretty good at guessing what's going to happen in the future. I, I read the news. I have a relatively intelligent brain. I can guess what's probably going to happen in the future on, on certain days, certain events, whatever happens. And, you know, with some statistical uh, probability, I'm, I'm right with, with, you know, with some frequency. And so we were to compare the frequency of, of my prognostications to that of the current prophet, I probably am actually better at guessing the future than the current prophet. And so the response becomes back, well, you know, he's just a man, you know, you got to cut him some slack, give Joseph a break. Well, that's totally fine. I'm totally good with that, actually. But what you're saying, Ben, is he's just a man. That's the, that's my argument. So if we're trying to say, what is the difference between a person who claims to be a pilot but can't fly and somebody who doesn't claim to be able to fly, you're looking at essentially the same kind of person. There's, there's no reason deserving of the title pilot if you cannot demonstrate that you can fly a plane. There's no reason to grant the title of prophet if you can't make prognostications any better than just any random person on the street. So the, yeah, the and simpler explanation to all of that is they just don't have those powers. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, if these, if these men don't produce anything that other other men just that aren't producing either like like if there's not anything they're producing that isn't be, that's beyond that's not beyond what anybody else can do then there's nothing special happening there um there's nothing there's nothing uh that that signifies that there's some special gift inside them and and, and as you point out at the end there it's even worse than that which is that these men seem to show that in spite of having pointed to the world and saying the world is lost and fallen and it is in this state of sin, that the world on social issues seems to always be ahead of prophets, seers, and revelators. And when I say ahead, I say ahead because the church eventually agrees with the worldly position. Exactly. And so whether it's birth control, cremation, um, racial equality, uh, in the middle right now of, of uh, sexual identity and gender identity equality, but women's rights, uh, women working outside the home. I mean, again, every one of these issues, the church held a certain position. Obviously, Spencer, my apologist, had his off at the moment. Um, the church has held a rigid uh, line-in-the-sand position. The world has progressed, and I say progressed again, only because the church later goes in the exact same direction. So on some level, Spencer, you're right. 
you as a younger person who is not concerned about losing any kind of loyalty or authority of others and being younger and being in a sense aware of the current culture, you actually could show a more adaptability at pointing out the direction the world's going to go in and the direction the church is eventually going to catch up on, on the very issues that the church is right now saying it's not going to hold that ground. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, so oh, I was just going to add this, this kind of reminds me of uh, sort of an analogy that I use in my book, but I, they call the, the Dumbo analogy. And so the, the point is, we look at the story of Dumbo, the, the, the fictional story of Dumbo who gets the feather and the, you know, the elephant that can fly. And so at the beginning of the story, he's given the feather uh, by the, the mouse and told that that feather is magic and that will allow him to fly. And then later, he drops the feather, but he's you know in, in, a, in a bit of a awful circumstance, he's going to jump anyway, and so he jumps and he realizes that he can fly just fine with just his big floppy ears. And so we can kind of look and see where, well, if we were to remove the, the feather from the equation, we can see that the feather was never necessary in the first place. And so we look at uh, these examples where, oh, he's a, he is a prophet because, you know, Gordon B. Hinckley is a prophet because he came up with the idea for these smaller temples. And so we say, wow, what, a, what an amazing uh, gift of God he had to be able to produce this revelation about the, the, the smaller temples or whatever. But again, if we were to just simply remove the, the magical element from this, the supernatural element from this, is this something that a just a regular businessman who's running a, a large corporation, could he have come up with the same sort of an idea? And of course, of course, of course, a, 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 a business executive could have come up with a way to save money in a business, which ultimately that's what the corporation of the church is, is a business. And so we have the, the prophet of the church coming up with a, a plan for the future to reduce costs on, on the, their buildings. Well, that's, that's something that just a regular person could have easily come up with. And so to refer to that as a revelation, it's kind of like the same thing as the pilot example where, well, he didn't fly anything, but he ate a hamburger. Well, okay. A regular person can eat a hamburger. You need a pilot to actually fly a plane. And so this is the kinds of things that we're looking at here, where it's, it's essentially boils down to what regular people could do. And so when we have an example where it's what regular people can do, then what we have is an example of normal, everyday behavior, give him a break, he's just a regular guy, and I 100% totally agree. So I joined the church in 1996, I believe. Um what what was the earliest prophet you can remember in your life in the, in the LDS church? Uh, I'm trying to think how far back I went, but I the, the one I probably remember the most is probably uh, uh, Benson's. First, first time that I ever really thought about it, yeah. What's the thing? You, you were exposed to President Ezra Taft Benson. Um, I came after that. I was deeply exposed to Gordon B. Hinckley and, and then Thomas S. Monson. Um, but I can tell you, like, again, if I'm just being honest, forget, forget believer, non-believer. Uh, if I'm just completely honest, 
I never saw anything from either of those two that another human being couldn't do. There was no, there was nothing significant. Like when I read the Bible and I read about Noah and Moses and Abraham and uh, Jonah and, and, and Pickett, you know, and again, I realize there are also other writers in the Bible who we put the title of prophet on and they're not doing anything significant. So I grant that that's, you know, sure, that that's an argument that the uh, faithful side can make. But the reality is that I also see lots of instances of what I would call God magic. And when I look at the history of the church, even with Joseph Smith, um, and again, I didn't live in that time. And so I would want to be present to see some of the things that maybe border on unexplainable to see if I could figure out why that happened the way it happened, if the story got embellished, or if things really did occur the way they did, or if there's some other explanation for why they happened. But at the very least, over the last 50 years of the prophets that I've read about or personally lived in their time and watched them operate, I have not seen a single act that I go, wow, nobody else could have done that except for a prophet. Um, it feels, and I want to make this argument too, it, when we look back at the Bible, we have all this God magic. And suddenly when we live in a world that is that events are recordable, that events are verifiable via the media, uh, events are shareable via social media, uh, suddenly nobody has the ability to do the miracles that happened in the days of Moses, Noah, and Abraham. So it's a dual argument. One is that when we look at these uh, people from a thousand years ago who were assigned that title and who performed God magic, the reality is it feels as if that's just a myth because those things aren't possible today. And the fact that they're not possible today also points to the fact that these men today are not prophets, seers, and revelators in the way that Moses, Noah, and Abraham were. They don't seem to have any ability to be um, to fulfill the responsibilities that we've given them in ter- terms of prophesying, seeing into the past and future, and giving revelation uh, in ways that we go like, wow, that was profound. Um, so it seems like it's a dual issue of having to essentially throw all God magic out And once we do that, we have to recognize that the labels we've given these people, uh, they don't seem to hold up. Yeah. I I had seen a funny little meme uh, flip around every now and again where they're showing a graph that's the frequency of miracles over time. And so the the frequency of miracles is kind of floating up there, you know, high on the graph for a little while. And then there's a spot where it marks where uh, cameras are invented. And then all of a sudden, the frequency of miracles just drops down to nothing. And then just shortly thereafter, there's another mark on there that says Photoshop was invented, and then all of a sudden it jumps right back up again. And so ultimately what they're saying is, you know, as long as we can somehow doctor the photos, because I I do see a lot of really interesting sort of things today, videos and whatnot, that seem like they're they're just at face value would be unexplained. Uh, But when you realize that we live in the world of Photoshop, it's relatively easy to explain how they were able to produce that specific video. Um, So, yeah, so the, yeah, I I see all kinds of wonderful things on the, on the internet, but it's relatively easy to explain how they produce that specific video. Uh, But what we are 
uh, left with, though, is we've got people today who seemingly can't perform any sort of miracle like what we had in the the Old Testament times with with uh, uh, Moses, you know, parting the Red Sea, or or uh, you know, different different prophets doing all kinds of different magical, wonderful things. Um, so. I guess, in a sense, we could say, well, they, there was just some sort of magic back then, but there's not such magic now. But the, the stories back then are relatively easy to explain as well, which is they are stories. So it's the same. It's the same sort of thing that we could say about, well, how is it that Superman is able to fly and shoot lasers out of his eyes and bend still and and run faster than a than a speeding train or whatever the case is. Well, the the answer is really easy to explain. We all know the answer. We all know the reason why that's very easy to explain, which is Superman is just a story. So we have we have no physical evidence of any kind that there really is a person named Superman and that no evidence whatsoever that he can do all of the the, the Superman magic. Uh, same exact circumstance. What, what we have in the Bible are stories. And so when we're looking for an explanation, a, a reasonable explanation that, that can explain what, how did those stories get there, well, those are words on paper. Just as easily as someone can write a story about Superman, someone can write a story about Moses. Moses did not write the, the, the five books of Moses. It was that they were written uh, after the time of Moses, or at, at the very at the very best, they are stories upon stories upon stories that eventually got down to the original the, the the eventual authors who wrote down the stories of Moses. And so, to explain that, if we're saying what's the most reasonable explanation, it's that they are stories. Yeah, and if you look, I mean, as a Mormon, all you have to do is look at another religion. So let's say you look at Scientology, and you see L. Ron Hubbard, who's a science fiction writer his entire life, and then turns uh, around and then initiates a religion by writing the book Dianetics, um, and suddenly implements a theology of gods and thetans and spirits and um, all this kind of... Uh, mythological storytelling. Now, let's go back in time and let's have Ron, L. Ron Hubbard write his works in an age where there's very little ability to fact check. Now, can one see how rather than Scientology being laughed at and mocked and made fun of because people have access to information and can see the holes in his story by fact checking his life and the productions that he's made, if you go back in time where there's not that ability, can you see how a story would go from being uh, just this little thing to suddenly having a large following, which Scientology, even in an age of information, has um, grown to at least a point where it has to be recognized um, as having having produced something and grown in membership to a point where um, it's statistically significant. Um, that to me it points right at the ability that we humans have to tell stories, to impose those stories as true, and for, depending on the credibility of that story, for people to believe in it and pick up on it. The reality, as you point out, is there's no magic today. And so, if you, as you pointed out too, what's the most reasonable, what's the most rational explanation for why there was magic then and there's no magic now? And it's because then it was a myth, and now we live in an age of recordable, verifiable, fact-checking, uh, a day of history. 
And, and so there's just no way to just slide these things by anymore. Yeah. In fact, a story that I use frequently to explain the same concept is the the Kojiki from Shinto. So this is Shinto is the indigenous religion of Japan. Uh, the the first recorded uh, kind of religious texts of Shinto were written in about 700 AD. And ultimately what the, the entire Kojiki is intent, intended to do is to legitimize the current emperor of Japan. And so what it starts out with is a story of the gods, the, the story of how the gods created the, the world. There were two... Um, a male and female uh, pair, Izanagi, Izanami, who essentially used a a naginata, which is a, a Japanese weapon, to stir up the, the the waters of chaos and create the, the the land of Japan. And so, once they did that work, then they populated the land, and just coincidentally, it just happened to be the the, the great uh, grandparent of the current emperor who set down their, their posterity and became the, the, the leadership of Japan. Uh, and then the story continues from there. But ultimately, that document is an obvious explanation for why the emperor should be the emperor, what legitimizes the emperor in their position. And if you look at the, the Bible, just, just take Genesis, just start at Genesis, and what you have is a story of how the gods, or in this case, the God that created uh, the heavens and the earth, and then created the earth, and then uh, eventually chose his favorite group of people. And it just so happened to be the group of people who were writing the Bible. And so, in a sense, the purpose of the Bible is to legitimize the the special status of uh, the Israelites in relation to all other people, uh, you know, within the surrounding area. And so, when we, when someone looks at the Kojiki, somebody who's, who I mean, most most Japanese don't take the Kojiki literally to begin with, but most anyone from outside of Japanese culture can easily see how the Kojiki was ultimately a work of propaganda to convince other people that the current emperor was divinely appointed. There is no reason whatsoever to assume that the Bible was not written with exactly the same purpose in mind, but it was just coincidentally happened to be the, that God Almighty created the heavens and the earth and then chose the people who happened to be writing that book as his, his, as his preferred special people. Yeah, I think we can look around and see lots of examples of lots of tribes, you know, groups of people who have commonalities, whether it be geographic location or some other commonality, writing mythological stories about their tribe being the best tribe among all the other tribes. That's just human beings doing the work of human beings. Um, I want to talk for a moment about polygamy. So if I put my apologist hat on, uh, again, I'll, I'll try to frame it and then talk from an apologist point of view. Um, just, the, just the generality of polygamy as a believer is that Joseph Smith uh, is commanded by God to uh, take more wives than just Emma. And he does this uh, beginning with uh, Fanny Alger. Uh, and then later on, I mean, there's another 40 or so women. I think there's 34 that we know for sure in total. And there's some debate on whether there's more than that. 
And some of these women are sisters. Some of these women are mother-daughter. But some of these cases are a little bothersome. We have uh, 16-year-old Fanny Alger, who is a maid in the Smith home two years before uh, sealing keys are restored. And Joseph is having a relationship with her to the point where Oliver Cowdery calls it an affair. And um, Emma Smith relates to William McClellan uh, that it was... Uh, an inappropriate reaction or an inappropriate relationship that she saw in the barn going on. And Joseph also has the tendency of young girls who are adopted by the Smith family in some sense of the word that they're taking care of as their own daughters, uh, Lucy Walker and the Lawrence sisters, where he seemingly is commanded by God to change a familial relationship of father-daughter into one of husband-wife. Um, we have instances of him not telling Emma. Uh, it seems that he's breaking the rules of Section 132. And so there's a lot of messiness to polygamy. Now, the apologist comes in and says, look, Joseph was, was commanded by God to practice this. And God didn't tell him exactly how to do it. And so I'll grant that Joseph got some things wrong, that he may have been uh, a little quick to do some of these things without thinking them through. and and But he's not a bad guy. He's not doing this for sex. We don't have examples of children being born from these marriages. Um, we, we don't even have, in most cases, uh, evidence of sex happening in these uh, relationships. Joseph also tends to marry uh, about a dozen women who are uh, married to other men already. So he's sealed to these women. And again, the evidence doesn't point to sexuality. The evidence doesn't point to uh, the sex being so prominent that children come out of these relationships. So we ought to grant Joseph Smith some some charity and uh, honor that, yeah, he, he may have messed some of this up. He may have gotten some of this wrong, but that doesn't take away from the fact that God commanded him to do it. Uh, your thoughts on polygamy? Yeah, and I I think uh, probably if most Mormons, Mormon apologists are being fair, they probably are wishing that this was not even an issue anyway. They probably kind of almost wish that that God didn't command this. In fact, there are you know other other break off churches of the of the Joseph Smith uh, variety that that uh, essentially just kind of flat out say that there's no way that this, that God even commanded this in the first place. I don't, I don't know that there are many, very many people who even want to defend this position in the first place. But if we're, if we're saying, what is the, if we're comparing different levels of reasonability for explanations for this, we can kind of go back to the dog ate my homework example and say, well, let's just say that the, the, the child, the student, uh, came in with a completely ripped up piece of paper and, you know, it's kind of showing, look, I, I, I the, the paper is all ripped up and I actually ripped it up, but I ripped it up at the behest of the magical dragon. I mean, I didn't want, I didn't want to rip it up. I just ripped it up because the, the magical dragon told me to rip it up. And so I have to obey the magical dragon or he's going to eat me. And so, so again, we can very simply look at the reasonability of, of the position and say, well, he didn't, he didn't want to have sex with these women. He didn't want to marry these women. It was that he was commanded by an angel who had a, a flaming sword that he was going to strike him down if they didn't. Well, just 
just to compare the reasonability between those two things is the same exact thing as did the child just rip up his own paper because he just didn't want to do his homework or was he truly in fact commanded by a magical dragon to rip up his homework? Otherwise, I mean, I, I don't want the kid to be eaten by a magical dragon. And so, so should I let the homework assignment slide because the magical dragon could have potentially eaten him? And so anyone listening to the, the story of the magical dragon and the homework would obviously say that the, the, the teacher would be uh, not doing their duty if they were to accept that the magical dragon was the explanation for why the paper got ripped up. And fundamentally, we've got the same situation here. We can, we can look at those two explanations and say, what is the more reasonable of these explanations? Is it that, that Joseph Smith just kind of maybe wanted to have sex, or is it that he was commanded to by an angel with a flaming sword? Between those two of them, one of, one of those explanations is by far more reasonable than the other. Right. We could go into... As you point out, you almost left it out, and I feel like you maybe left it out intentionally because I just don't think it matters, is to debate the sexuality, to debate all these peripheral issues. You're right. I mean, if I'm going to accept there's a magic being in the sky and this magic being interacts with us, um, we're going to have to either say, like, what's the evidence of that? And are there other explanations for the things we see that are more rational, more reasonable? And as you point out, for Joseph to claim that a magical being in the sky commanded him uh, as a member of this really small religion among, uh, in the world's history, a million religions, to uh, enter into polygamy, and there comes with all this messiness and all these issues, as you point out, the, the much more reasonable, rational take is to simply say, like, no, there's no magic being in the sky who's telling him to do this, he's just doing it. Um, I want to talk for a moment about the race and priesthood. And I struggle with this one because on some level, the church wants to admit that it has gained knowledge from God that parts of this are were false. And then it wants to own that still parts of this may still very well be from God. So as a believer, uh, when I look at the race and priesthood issue, uh, we know in our early history that Brigham Young, specifically in 1852, began treating those of color as having less privileges in the church. Soon after that, uh, leaders began to give shape and form to, to that uh, policy and begin to refer to it as doctrine and begin to uh, explain that the reasons why those of color could not enjoy privileges. And these leaders taught it as if it was from God. They called it doctrine. Um, they, they were adamant about not being able to change it until God commanded otherwise. And so we had theories like those of color were less valiant in the pre-mortal life. Even when I joined the church in 1996, for the first maybe five to 10 years of my time in the church, I would still hear uh, rumblings of these, these theories uh, which I, at the time, believed because it was imposed on me within Mormonism as they were true, that those of color were cursed, uh, that interracial marriage was a sin. And somewhere along the way, 1978, uh, but, but before that, somewhere along the way, the church starts to realize that, wait a minute, um, this may not be the way God wants things to be. And in 1978, Spencer Kimball uh, changes the 
policy so that those of color can now receive saving ordinances and are welcomed into full fellowship with everyone else. And then we fast forward to today, and I think it was 2000 and I don't know what it was, 2010, maybe 2011, 2012, when that race and priesthood essay came out. And when that came out, it essentially announced that we, the prophet seers and revelators, we've somehow learned that uh, these theories that we used to teach as doctrine are not true, but we, but God hasn't informed us for some reason whether the ban itself was from God or not. And you even saw recently where, where Elder Oaks seemed to double down on the fact that the ban was from God, uh, regardless of whether the theories were or not and that they're not. Um, I, I simply want to get your thoughts maybe on this magic being God who gives some doctrines and then allows his prophets to claim other things. And then this same, and these leaders believe seriously that these things came from God only to go fast forward into the future where um, future leaders seem to know by the same source that these things, some of these things are not from God, that those earlier leaders thought they were and then to not know other parts and parcels of, of this whole policy and doctrine. Um, as, if I put on the apologist hat, it would simply be that, again, God's ways are not our ways. And who are we to decide what God should allow or what he should speak to his prophet about? That we should simply wait upon the Lord and recognize that God will work with his servants um, in his own time and based on their own ability to ask questions and to be open to new ideas. Uh, and that God, for some reason seems to be deeply concerned about things like missionary age, but seems to allow for, you know, 150 years uh, for racist, offensive tra trauma causing harmful false things to be taught and imposed as if they're his mind and will. Uh, your commentary may be on the race and priesthood issue. Yeah, this, this one is kind of a mess, isn't it? So that's uh, the essay on the topic, uh, any prior discussion on the topic, the, the wording around the issue is always carefully chosen. It's, it's very carefully chosen because it's always said in a way that neither throws the earlier prophets under the bus nor throws God under the bus. And so even with the Oaks, I, I listened to that uh, specific language in, in that talk several times to try to pick out if he was actually trying to lay blame one way or the other. And it was still very carefully worded, almost as though he were an attorney to, to try to avoid uh, actually taking a stand one way or the other on what was the source of the original ban in the first place. And so uh, I, I think that ultimately to really answer the question, we, have, we first have to have an actual explanation. Like, like they, they have left it so vague that there's no real explanation as to how it came about in the first place. But since there is no official explanation, they're constantly so vague about uh, how it came about in the first place. We kind of need to look at both paths just to kind of see how there's actually a problem regardless of which path you choose. And that can probably help explain why they're so vague about it now. 
So they 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 are very careful to avoid saying that it was uh, truly doctrine from God, that it was a revelation from God. And they're also very careful to say, to not say that it was just the opinions and theories that it came from the opinions and theories of man. And as you mentioned, and I, I, I got the same impression that Oaks was seemed to be giving the impression that he believed that the ban was from God. But reading through his very carefully written words, he didn't really, he didn't really settle on that position. But let's just look at both positions and why they're both a problem. First, let's just say that it is from God. Essentially, what you are left with is you are left with a changeable God. You're left with a God who plays favorites. You're left with God who is essentially a racist himself that makes these sorts of decisions based on skin color. Um, and, and actually, to, to be fair, it kind of fits in line with a lot of the other uh, doctrines or the teachings that you could get out of like the Book of Abraham or the Old Testament or whatnot that tend to sort of lead in that same that same direction as well that but what you but what you have is you have a god who is a changeable god who is is racist or not the the flip to that is we can say well god was never like that he was never racist he loves all people he loves you know just the, like the book of mormon says he loves uh, everyone is is alike unto god we're black and white you know m- male and female, whatever the case is, we're all alike unto God, and that was never the intention of God in the first place. But then what you're left with is, you're left with people, again, going back to our conversation about prophets, we're left with people who claim to be prophets, who seem to have no better insight into the mind of God than just a regular person. The same thing as the pilots, you've got somebody who claims to be a pilot, who has no ability to fly a plane whatsoever, and in many ways seems like he would actually be the worst person to put in you know, the, the, the pilot's chair. And so I think that that's essentially where we are left with this, uh, with this, uh, this situation, is a, is a big complication that essentially demonstrates that, again, somebody could respond and, you know, in defense of, of Brigham Young and say, well, he's just a man, just give him, give him a break, you know, give give Brother Brigham a break, but what we're left with is that there's no reason to trust that he has any special insight into the mind of God. And so that's essentially where we're left, is, is uh, what, where do we go? But, but ultimately, there's no way to even really answer this question, and there may be some design behind this, because they don't actually even pin down which problem we're looking at. Which of those which of those two paths are we taking? They're you know who knows because they they don't say. Yeah, and I I think as you point out, and I'm going to reiterate here, it seems that the easiest way to explain this issue is is a bunch of individuals with ethnocentric racism, right? Like like the idea that my tribe's better, and what my tribe is is we're white people. And those of color, they're somehow less than, and that gets out of control when we begin to implement uh, lines in the sand that separate them from us. And then we try to give reasons and explanations for why we've made that separation. And in ages of the inability to 
uh, fact check or even understanding the diversity of others and why colors of skin are different. And it's really easy to just impose whatever you want and nobody being able to demonstrably prove that wrong. And hence those things begin to stick. Um, it, it just feels if I look at that entire issue, I don't have, like you say, I don't have to invoke God. I can just look at people being mean to each other and see that happening every day and realize that this thing that Brigham Young did and every leader after him uh, gave shape to and perpetuated, that it's the same thing human beings have been doing to each other for thousands of years. Yeah, there's no need whatsoever to invoke God. So if you were to compare the two possible explanations, which one is the asteroid explanation and which one is the Dyson sphere explanation? The, the asteroid explanation is we have normal people behaving normally in, for the 1800s. I mean, we don't have to go back to the 1800s to see racism, but but certainly it would have been a very normal human behavior to assume that our normal, you know, white male behavior in the 1800s to assume that they were superior to blacks, and that it's fantastic if you have, you know, if you if you have an opinion and you want to put some weight behind that opinion, you you invoke the gods. I mean, it's the same as the Japanese kajiki, right? So if, if you want to add some weight to your position that I am the legitimate emperor of Japan, I put that uh, position into the mouth of the gods. And so essentially it's the same exact thing going on here. You want to explain why uh, blacks should be slaves and whites should be the superior race? Well, put, put it into the mouth of God and there you go. So what's the, what's the easier explanation here, that God actually did that, or that someone's just looking to legitimize their position by invoking God? Right, right. So we're about an hour and a half in. I think we'll kind of stop on, on these issues, Spencer. I think that as we go further, people are just going to hear these same concepts come up over and over again. And I simply want to kind of finish off just reiterating what you're saying, which is, I get, I, like, when we are inside a religious tribe— we deeply believe our religious tribe is the one and only true religious tribe. That, that happens across humanity. And we see the evidence we need to see to support that belief. Like we look at the Catholic Church and we go like, yeah, they're not it. I'm it. We look at other religions like Islam uh, or Judaism and we say like, yeah, they're not it. I'm it. And on, so on some level, we're always going to in a believing perspective, give preference or bias to our tribe's view. But if you can gain the ability to step back and say, like, is that really reasonable? Like, if I was in Scientology, how would I know that I'm not in the one and only true uh, religion? How would I know that? And so you have to be able to ask yourself questions and look at things objectively, or at least as objectively as you can, and as Spencer has pointed out throughout this episode, if you can find other explanations that are more reasonable, and you find that specifically when you find that happening over and over and over again, like you don't need your brand of magic to explain what's happening. Um, and then also to recognize that while you're having spiritual experiences, which I grant, I think people do have spiritual experiences, but recognizing that while Mormons are having uh, experiences that testify of Mormonism, 
Catholics are having experiences that testify of Catholicism. Jews are having experiences that testify of Judaism. Uh, people of Islam have experiences that testify of, of, of Islam being the one true church, uh, the one true religion, I should say. And we ought to recognize, like, if everyone's having experiences and if the way in which that religion operates can be explained uh, in secular ways without having to invoke God magic, then can we step back and say, like, well, maybe, maybe this isn't exactly the way I thought it was, and can we be open to readjusting our views? Any closing thoughts from you, Spencer? Yeah, and even just that last idea that you were saying about people having spiritual experiences. I also, I mean, a spiritual experience is a subjective experience. It's the same thing as saying, uh, I am hungry. I'm not going to deny someone the fact that if they claim they are hungry, that they are in fact hungry. If someone is having a subjective experience and is saying, yes, I am, I am feeling something and it's a nice warm feeling or whatever the case is, I wouldn't deny that that's what's going on. Um, but again, just as we have talked about in every one of these other circumstances, even that has a, a mundane, natural, alternate explanation for what's actually going on. And so, again, it's just like everything that we talk about, every one of these examples that we talk about, even the very concept of saying a prayer and receiving an answer from God can also be explained in a way that doesn't require you to invoke a supernatural force in order to explain. Yeah, and I'll give one example as we close, which is there is a a psychological mechanism called elevation emotion. And if anybody's listening to this and you're a believer and you're like, no, I just just don't buy what these guys are saying, simply go do your own research on elevation emotion. It has nothing to do with Mormonism. They can do studies and test uh, on folks in labs with questions and studying how the brain reacts and how people describe their feelings. It doesn't matter whether the information's true or not. Uh, it only matters that it feels true and that it feels uh, like it's a positive thing. And what you'll find is the way scientists and psychologists and those in the social sciences, the way they describe elevation emotion matches exactly the way Mormonism describes how the Holy Ghost feels. And so while you may have felt something, again, Spencer is not taking that away, you may have felt something. Is there a secular explanation that is more reasonable than the magic being in the sky giving you that? And again, if you're open to that, if you look up elevation emotion, you're going to realize really quickly, like the good, the, the times you've been in church or had a church experience uh, specific to Mormonism and felt that warm, fuzzy feeling inside and said like, oh my goodness, that's the Holy Ghost. The reality is that elevation emotion explains that perfectly. And so as Spencer's pointing out, like to be open to more reasonable explanations than, than God magic. Um, just want to finish up saying, Spencer, thank you so much for being on. Uh, I think this is helpful. I think it's hard for people. I don't know if anybody will be moved by this. Um, but I think once you've questioned things, once you've opened up to like, is my way the right way? I think once people see it over and over again, they admit, like, once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And so I think you're speaking to something really important to people um, to help them kind of get their agency back and to take control of what they're going to believe and not believe and what's reasonable and not reasonable and to be more rational thinkers uh, and to look for the most rational uh, reconciliation for these questions and concerns. Uh, But again, I I don't know how fast people move 
from one side of the spectrum to, to seeing all of this, but I think it's helpful to begin to plant those seeds. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah, if only we could keep our emotion and our comfortability out of the way, it would make things much easier. But people have allegiances to things, and those things are sacred to their identities, and uh, people are not going to let others uh, or ideas poke holes in those. Say